Welcome to Tech Insights from Infotech Research Group, the podcast where we cut through all the noise and focus on what really matters for technology leaders. Do you know how much the U.S. federal government spends on IT? Go on and take a guess. Do you have a number in your head? Not yet? Okay, well, I'll start by telling you that the U.S. government represents the biggest budget for IT spending in the world. Remember, we're including all the agencies here, the Department of Defense, the Environmental Protection Agency, the FBI. And before I give you the answer, let me throw out some numbers to scribble down on the back of your napkin. The first number is $10 billion. That's the cost of the cloud computing contract with Microsoft that the Pentagon cancelled just last week. Known as the Jedi Cloud Contract, that money will still be spent eventually. It's just delayed. The new contract might be worth even more money. It makes you wonder how much the government already spends on cloud contracts. The next number is $900 million. And I'm sticking with a Pentagon example here, because that's the amount the department will spend on AI by next year. And we're seeing that spending go up like the curve of a hockey stick. Last number for you, $20 billion. That's the estimated cost of global ransomware damages. Just last week, an attack on network management software firm Kaseya spread through hundreds of companies. With federal agencies both being hit by ransomware themselves and also trying to investigate these attacks, well, that must cost them a lot of money too. Are you ready to add it all up? Okay, here it is. In 2021, the U.S. federal government will spend more than $90 trillion on IT. Yeah, that's a lot of Benjamins. So no wonder we are constantly hearing about it in news headlines. We wanted to take a peek behind those headlines and hear about how the United States is grappling with these issues. So today on Tech Insights, we're speaking with a special guest. Steve Warren is the Federal Chief Technology Officer at Intel. He has decades of experience working with government agencies to deliver on big technology projects. I had a chance to interview him recently. Listen in. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, and thank you for having me today, Brian. It's a real pleasure. And my first question for you is just really to have you quickly explain yourself and your role at Intel. Uh, I mean, we all know Intel for its processors, the Intel inside. That's my memories of it going way back. And uh, so I know it's evolved as a company and uh, doing all sorts of different things with data. But you tell me about your life at Intel and how you're involved with these different federal agencies in the U.S. as a partner? Sure. So uh, as, as the federal CTO, it is my job to help uh, the U.S. government uh, understand and adopt technologies up and down the stack um, from a range of capability sets. So as you mentioned, Intel is known for its processors, but we are truly a platform company providing the compute storage and networking from the pointy edge of the sphere, the edge computing, 5G, sensors, all the way back to the back end, to the cloud and high performance computing. And so my role is to help the federal government understand these different technologies and architectures, take advantage of what's here and available today and plan for the, the roadmap, what's coming down the pike, what new features, new performance capabilities and new operations they'll be able to leverage going forward. 
Okay, that's perfect and very succinct explanation. So thanks for that. And now I, I have to ask you, because we've all just watched this big um, change in power in the U.S. when it comes to the federal government. And I'm here in Toronto, so it's just uh, from an observer's point of view, of course, uh, we're all very interested in it up here in Canada, too. I guarantee you that. But what are your observations on the changes since Joe Biden became president? I mean, we remember that the transfer of power from Donald Trump there was rocky, I think. But now we're six months into Biden's presidency. So what impact do you think the new administration has had on the federal agencies that you work with? So I think there's a couple ways to look at that. Um, and we have seen some major progress, uh, especially in the last several months as things uh, sort of settled down and started hitting the ground running. Beyond the current affairs, which is really helping the U.S. and the world come out of this pandemic and address the economic crisis that it uh, ensued, I'm seeing a renewed focus in the uh, in the federal agencies around modernization. And that cuts across technology, operations, um, and the overall mission. How do these if the various agencies, both on the military as well as on the civilian side, um, address their mission and their area of focus in the most efficient way. And that may be moving to the cloud, taking advantage of cloud architectures to reduce waste and reduce complexity. It also in many cases means looking at the organization and optimizing those organizations. We've seen some interesting moves throughout the past couple of months um, at the civilian agencies, looking at ways to optimize how they're able to service the citizenry. The other thing that I've seen happen recently on the technology front beyond just standard you know, so network and system modernization is a real focus on supply chain. I think the pandemic highlighted just how fragile the global supply chain is when it, whether it comes to semiconductors, raw materials, automotive, and basic goods and services. Along with that focus on supply chain, we're seeing the agencies take security much more seriously. And I think those, the new executive order that was uh, signed, the Improving Nations Cybersecurity, highlights how it's become a national uh, crisis. But also the uh, seeing the, the move towards data centricity, having data drive decisions, both at the mission level and at the enterprise level, and at the, at the business level, if you will, the operational level of how organizations work. That fundamental shift to looking at data to drive that is how they're going to implement those efficiencies. Wow, you're laying out a few different trends there. I'll just go back to the supply chain issue because on this podcast, a few episodes back, we were talking about the semiconductor shortage. And the concept we were talking about is, does the U.S. need to have its own uh, capability to manufacture semiconductors in Canada as well? But um, is this, uh, you know what, I, in the few weeks since then, um, I think the problem has become even more worrisome. Uh, so... Uh, what what do you have any comments on that? What are your observations uh, when we're thinking about supply chains? And you know, for for Intel, what 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 does it think about the semiconductor shortage? So I think there's a couple there's a couple ways to unpack that. Uh, I think the pandemic and and the resulting crises around it really highlighted how um, the various supply chains are in a global economy are interconnected. And if one area of the world uh, locks down or or stops shipping, it affects everyone else. So whether you look at the automotive semiconductor problem or you look at other supply chain issues with other components that went into laptops or servers, or you look into even the raw materials that go into building some of those complex systems, the supply chain became a, a critical issue. And I think a lot of people focus on the U.S. manufacturing side, which definitely needs to spin itself up again 
to be able to, to service um, the global need. But I think one of the things that both the Biden administration, uh, folks at Intel and uh, all the major uh, industrial companies are looking at, it's not a a, a U.S. only approach. It's the, the the Western world. So Canada, the EU working together to understand how do we be how do we uh, have uh, independent supply chains or resiliency built into the supply chain. It's going to take a whole effort across country to really solve some of these problems because it doesn't all happen here in the U.S. and it's not going to all happen in China. Um, and so it's understanding the, the, the complexities of that supply chain and getting our partners working together. We've seen the investments in the U.S. The uh, America Supply Chain uh, Innovation Comp- Competition Act is funding major investments into the U.S. supply chain. But you saw you saw from about a, uh, several weeks ago, Intel CEO announcing that not only are we doing the investments locally uh, of $20 billion in two new fabs, but we're also going to be doing those investments in the EU because we recognize that it's going to take a multi-country approach to helping to fix these supply chains. The other okay. side of that conversation, though, is what do we need to do today? How do we help? And one of the things that Intel is doing, and along with the ecosystem, is we announced an, a foundry service so that we can start to build chips for these other markets, not just processors for laptops and servers, but for eventually for cars, for sensors, for cameras and for phones and for other things. And understanding that we need to have domestic foundry capability, not just domestic manufacturing capability. And so I think that two-pronged approach, both domestically and with our our allies, is really how we're going to help solve the supply chain issues going forward. Okay. Um, Let's talk about cybersecurity. You, I know you advise on this quite a lot, and it's a hot topic lately. I mean, earlier this month, we saw the CEO of the Colonial Pipeline standing in front of a Senate committee explaining why he had to pay ransom to Darkside against the advice of the FBI and CIA. Uh, that's not a position that every CEO uh, imagines themselves in. Uh, it seems like since the solar winds attack, uh, we there have been many devastating attacks on federal government computer systems. Steve, is this a national crisis? So yes, I think it has been a national crisis for some time. Cybersecurity events have increased year over year, whether it be the sheer number of data uh, breaches that we've seen in the last year, the trillion of dollars that was affected by those data breaches, to the more to the rash of ransomware attacks we've seen. And for everyone that hits the news, there's hundreds that never make it. Small sheriff's departments, local hospitals, school districts that are also being targeted by that ransomware. So I think that cybersecurity in general is absolutely a national crisis. The EEO is the first step in a long road of what we need to do as a country and as an industry to really start to address these issues. I think that at the fundamental change, and while cybersecurity has been a foundational important thing for a very long time, I've been active in the cybersecurity market for over 25 years, and it's always been an issue. We've always had this notion of that you know, time to market or functionality would trump security every time. The change that's happened most recently is the understanding that unless you have the it built into the requirements, and there's part of the contract is that it must be secure, that your vendors have to secure their products before to deliver for you to accept it. Not that shift in the in putting really the money behind cybersecurity is the major shift that we've seen recently. So in the executive order, you know, buried in the text there is around the FAR Council updating their terms. Does mean the government contracts are going to require security as part of the contract? 
that now elevates security to the same level as functionality, performance, support, and all the other features you typically have in a contract. That's a fundamental shift that we've been waiting for. And I think that's going to do a lot to help move the, 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 the efforts because it's going to put the right incentives in the right place for getting security better. It's not going to solve the problem. We're going to still have attacks, but that's a really good first step. Yeah, I see why that would help, because we always talk about the need to build security from the ground up. Don't just try and bolt it on later. Make sure you're working with that in mind right from the start of your design process or project. And so the government's going to do more of that. You know, when I think about this situation and I see that uh, CEO in front of the Senate and he's he's sort of defending paying this ransom. And then um, we hear that often um, when companies go to their insurance firms or they seek advice, the advice is you have to pay the ransom. Uh, and the reason is it's the cheapest way out, right? So I just wonder if there is some sort of um, systems problem here where the incentive structure are set up in such a way that uh, it continues. Because if, if the easiest way out of this is to pay the ransom, then the bad guys get what they want. They can keep doing attacks and the cycle continues. What do you think of this? So I agree with you. I think that the problem is that the incentive structure is broken right now. Um, and it's not just the easiest, but the key word there is also the fastest. So when your operations are down and you want to start recovering and getting back to a known good state, if you haven't built those structures in place to be able to recover from offline backups, to have access to replacement systems that haven't been affected and have the right security controls to prevent further infection, you're left with a decision of, e of either waiting until you can get there or being able to quickly get back in, in the case of the pipeline pumping gas or in the case of the JBS attack that happened a couple weeks later, uh, being able to, you know, the meatpacking industry to open back up again. Oftentimes when it's a uh, that kind of decision, they're going to pay the ransom. I think that the, the, the key thing that the people have to walk away from this, you know, CEOs and CIOs of organizations is recognize that every no one is immune. The fact that the pipeline, which would maybe you could think of as a good target, and the meatpacking industry, which wouldn't normally come up as a likely target of attack, were both attacked by the same style of attack, by ransomware. Every CEO has to have a plan for how do they detect this earlier and how do they recover? And that's the key word there. It's recovery and resiliency because you're not going to prevent every attack. So how do you get back without having to pay the ransom? And so for a short period of time, we're going to see a lot more ransoms paid. But in the long run, we're going to see companies making the investments now because it's cheaper to make those investments now to do resiliency in their systems, to do zero uh, zero trust architecture, to th than to have to pay the ransom and have to pay it again because once they find out you pay, they're going to come back to you again. Do you think there's any room for the government to affect this from a policy standpoint? Like you 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 pointed out one way they're already doing that by putting it you know, security into every government project is going to be one of the top concerns there. Uh, but what about for private companies, right? And something you could do is say, it's illegal to pay uh, ransom payments to ransomware. Or if you we find out that you've done it, you'll in fact be penalized even further. So you could change the incentive structure almost overnight by creating a, a page of policy, it seems to be. What, what do you think of this idea? So I'm not going to comment on, I mean, this is an active policy discussion right now, so I won't necessarily comment on the policy side of it, because I think there's, there's people can see pros and cons of both. I think the real challenge is when you talk about the implementation. The pipeline attack is a great example. The, the, the east coast of the U.S. was shut down, gas was unavailable. And if they had not paid the ransom, 
there would have been a you know that would have continued. And so at some point you've got to make you've got to really change it from a pay the ransom, not a knee jerk regulation against it to a risk based approach. And I think that's what was missing from a lot of that conversation is not it's not a either or it's not a binary pay the ransom, don't pay the ransom, you know, find people who pay ransoms. It's really about it's got to build a risk based approach of when is it appropriate to pay the ransom and when is it not? And when it's a national security or you know the ability to, to power the grid, those make you have to be able to make a, re, a risk-based decision. And unfortunately, most regulations don't have that flexibility. So I think there's a lot of conversation we had. I don't think anything's going to change in the short term. But I think if we were going to go try to get to some sort of policy around this, it has to include a risk-based approach to, a, to its applicability. That makes sense. You have to consider the nuances there. Well, let's move on because I also want to talk to you about AI. And I understand all the work that you've been doing to consult with the federal government in the U.S. about the use of AI. Now at Infotech, we talk about the opportunity that's available to companies to use AI strategically and drive their core value proposition. Uh, there's going to be some game-changing ways of approaching the business market driven by AI over the next few years. I know that. But tell me about in government. What are the opportunities that you see? And uh, perhaps you can start again with security. So I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, and already some being realized in the government adopting AI machine learning uh, for a variety of things. So we can start with security, which is probably one of the, the hottest topics right now. Can I use an AI to detect secu uh, security events or anomalies quicker? Can I use an AI to try to close vulnerabilities faster than using the human in the loop? It's one of those you know, things that everyone wants to do, but there's a, a unique challenge in the security space, and that's the complexity of cybersecurity events. Every event is somewhat different, whether it was a ransomware from DarkSide or another ransomware, if it was a SolarWinds-style attack versus uh, a phishing campaign. AI is driven by data. And so one of the things, and this is something that I, you know, I've, I've uh, uh, preached for quite often, is we need to open up the data. We need to share data across industry and government, across agency, to effectively train those AI so that they can see more of these examples, not just the outcomes, but the forensic data as well, because that's how you're going to get an AI that can recognize the next ransomware that we've never seen before. So it's going to start with getting access to data to drive that learning. Now, where we have seen really good efficiencies and, and uh, exciting uses of AIs in other areas of the government, whether it be operational efficiencies and logistics, predictive maintenance, and even in acquisitions and compliance. One of the first public use cases of machine learning um, was the Air Force looking at their own acquisition process and using a machine learning AI system to be able to go in and get rid of waste and find redundancies and get better efficiencies. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were able to get ridiculously good numbers and reduce the overhead of the of their acquisition process by training the, the machine learning on the, you know, the government contracts that the Air Force was doing. I mean, again, a large organization has a lot of redundancy in there and a lot of inefficiencies in the way the contracts were written in the contract languages. So that was one example of where they took, they had the data because they had all the contracts and they were able to deploy something that immediately showed um, real value. We're obviously also seeing a lot of AI being applied, you know, similar to how AI is in the consumer world with object recognition, facial recognition, uh, object detection in, you know, AR and VR and even on your phone. Well, those same algorithms are being used in, in important mission areas like intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or ISR. 
in logistics and uh, for troop deployments, in autonomy. So AI is permeating much of the federal government on the enterprise and on the mission side. So we're, we are definitely seeing an increase in data-driven decision-making and AI-driven capability sets. All right, that's a really compelling case study with um, that department that was able to analyze a procurement process and, and become more efficient. Um, because I think when, when it comes to examples of AI doing things in government, you often think about, oh, what can we optimize? Let's find that robotic process auto automation that we can implement to reduce um, things and make them a little bit more strategic. But it's incremental improvements as opposed to let's redesign an entire system, an entire way that we go about doing something now that we have this new capability and let the capability drive it. So a uh, really good example there. That's when you're getting strategic about it for sure. Uh, let's focus in, and you raised it there, uh, but I'm I'm very curious about this, you know, another hot button issue, right, of use of AI uh, with the military and using it for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, as you phrased it. Let's start with the opportunities. Dig into that. What what do you see as the opportunities there? So the, the opportunities are many. Um, AI for ISR use cases of being able to take sensor data, take you know, satellite data, be able to do object object classification. Is that a truck? Is that a tank? Did that truck move? Be able to do that at speed in near or even real time, being able to do that at the edge. So as the drone is out there doing surveillance of a location, instead of waiting for headquarters to do run some big analytic in the cloud, they can actually now do that in the drone itself with edge computing. They can then have that using the, uh, next generation networking technologies, communicate the information to the warfighter in the field. And so what you get is a more accurate view. Ultimately, that reduces uh, the, 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 the risks in the battlefield environment, both to our people and to civilians. It also gives you better fidelity so that you get better intelligence and get it faster. Um, and so we're seeing AI really permeate all aspects of the ISR, you know, whether it be, again, surveillance, reconnaissance, intelligence gathering, being able to speed up what you can do, but also getting better accuracy out of the data sets that you're getting. Right. And when you start having this discussion, I think what leaps to mind for most people are the ethical considerations. And when you're talking about how the government can apply AI, uh, not only in the military, but um, even with other government departments, there's a lot of different uh, ways that AI could affect people's lives. And uh, there could be a danger of bias really uh, making, leading to negative outcomes. So what do you, how do you direct that type of conversation? And when you're talking about the opportunities that lie ahead of us with AI, uh, where do the ethics fit in for you? So I was actually really impressed uh, when uh, a couple of years ago, the DOD, Department of Defense, stood up the Joint AI Center, so J or Jake. And when they did, they, it was a new command where they were going to do AI and, and do AI research, do AI deployments, and manage AI for the DOD. One of the five groups of the, of the Jake was defined as the ethics group. And very quickly, they published the what they call, of course, number five keeps permeating, like the Pentagon, five principles of artificial intelligent ethics. And so they published, here's the, the metric by which we're going to uh, run ride uh, AI ethics. And it was really five tenets. It was responsible, use, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. Those were the five bullet points. And they've actually spun up a whole team to help flesh that out because it's not just a question of other people looking in, but the individuals within the department 
you know, a lot of them are new to AI. And so as they're adopting these technologies, having these guideposts in place to help as they're making decisions about how to use the AI, how to train it. And again, you mentioned bias. That's really one of the key challenges we found in a lot of data sets is if you don't have the traceability to know what the data is that trained your AI, your outcomes are going to be you know, less than less than uh, great. There have been many terrible examples online of you know, image or human recognition algorithms that were trained on poorly or on limited data sets that then the resulting AI, when you start doing the inference, resulted in very bad classifications, uh, some of them offensive. And the reason for that is, again, they didn't have that traceability into the data set. And one of the things that I, I was impressed in seeing the DOD recognize is that data does matter and the biases that can be introduced early have to be identified and corrected. And when they say corrected, you, you have to deal with the data you have. But if you know that you have a skewed data set that you need to use, that knowing that in the beginning, you can then match that with other data sets or increase your data set diversity to help get you a better resulting outcome. There's this old adage that for every bad piece of data you train on, you need two good pieces of, uh, of data just to cancel it out. But if you don't know, it's too late by the time you have the algorithm. And so I think that traceability is one of the key things that, they, that they've identified as being able to know what data sets drove this model, this algorithm, and the waiting for it so they can make proper decisions about how it's used or how it needs to be retrained. Right. Being able to audit it and say, well, if it was trained on this set of population, should we really be deploying it in this scenario? Uh, that type of conversation would be really helpful. Another concept we have at Infotech is about keeping the human in the loop. And there's just moments that are appropriate when uh, people want another person to pass a judgment as opposed to AI to pass a judgment, right? And it, particularly, you think about many instances when you're dealing with the government. Um, you know, imagine if you your AI was making some sort of decision about whether you're getting a welfare check that month or social assistance or uh, any number of decisions that could affect your life like that. What do you think about keeping people involved in the process and making sure that AI is complemented by that human in the loop? So that is a, an ongoing conversation around how do you keep, how do you have auditability into the AI decision without becoming a hindrance? Because if you have to check every decision, then there's, you've not actually accomplished anything. Um, and some of that goes to the, both the, the traceability, but then also having the right governance model. And this is, again, and I use the term often about a risk-based approach. If, you know, when you're looking at sort of doing supply chain management and wanting to be able to ship goods around, to use an example like that, you, you're going to ship goods around, you're going to rely on the AI for most things. And if it's a million-dollar purchase, then maybe you'll have a human in the loop. But if anything under a million dollars, you want to automate the process and get, get the parts to where they need to be. As an example, I'm making up an example here. When it comes to the welfare check, you also want to have the ability to do that spot checking to make sure there's not some undue bias. And that's where having traceability that is also auditable comes into play so that you can get the, with the and again, a lot of people talk about something called explainable AI, which I think is still a bit of a pipe dream because you won't, don't, aren't able to unpack every aspect of how the AI made the decision. But traceability at least gives you, here's what was resulted, what the resulting decision was, here was the data it used to make that decision. And you can at least say, okay, the data was correct, or no, the data was wrong because they, they lumped you in a zip code that you didn't belong with, or they, they, they assumed a demographic that wasn't in, true. That's where the traceability and that explainability really comes into play. So you need that for, for key things, but you can't apply it everywhere. You have to pick the right places where it either impacts people's lives or the, you know, the risk scenario is high enough that it makes sense 
to build in those extra governance. And that's why governable is a key component to have that governance model. Steve, another thing that you talk to government about is the idea of cloud infrastructure and adopting uh, more cloud infrastructure to accomplish things in government. And you advocate for a multi-cloud strategy in the government, which makes total sense to me because different vendors offer different strengths and capabilities. And when you have a budget as large as the budgets we see in the federal government, um, hundred like $100 billion, this sort of scale, uh, it does make sense to create different opportunities for the competitors that are in the market. So tell me about your reasoning for why a multi-cloud approach is right for the government. So I think there are a couple of different reasons why multi-cloud uh, and multi and multi-hybrid cloud is, the, is a good approach. So not every application is right to go in every kind of cloud. Some applications are, are fine to go into a public cloud, even if it's a, a government uh, supported cloud that's FedRAMP compliant. Some, because of classification or sensitivity, are gonna need to be on the inside still, but they can still be a cloud architecture. So a hybrid style approach. But it also is the classic example, preventing vendor lock-in. So that if you need to be able to move to another cloud, if the contract is needs to be uh, recompeted in 10 years, you want to be able to seamlessly move your workloads to the new cloud, or you need to be able to adopt it. But the real the real ch game changer is, a, is what you said, the differentiated services. Not all cloud lenders are alike. Matter of fact, they're all trying to compete with each other by having differentiated services and capabilities. It's not a one or the other conversation. The government mission is complex enough where there may be benefits from an Azure that they can get other things from an Amazon and still third things from an IBM or Google. And if they lock themselves into just one, they're not going to be able to get those differentiated services. And so by having a multi-cloud approach, you can deploy your workload into the cloud, but take advantage of services or SaaS for a particular part of your workload that it makes sense. And the nice thing is that we're all service-based now. And so these cloud, if you go cloud native, you're able to take advantage of services across the heterogeneous cloud architecture. And then lastly, it's, I think the other is, is around access and, and availability. You want to make sure that your workloads, your mission, your data is able to support where you are when you need it. And whether that's local backend uh, uh, headquarters style operations or in theater operations, sometimes you need to have a diversity of cloud architectures and cloud providers to support the end-to-end -end scenario. Okay. And at Infotech, we have this concept called the self-sovereign cloud. Uh, so the idea here is that you have to control your infrastructure. You know, whether it's a hybrid cloud infrastructure or you have your own servers, you want to keep control over three key aspects, performance, security, and the geography. Where, where are your workloads running? Where is your data stored? So in the context of the U.S. government, I will assume that uh, we're sort of storing everything on American soil. Um, but I'm wondering about encryption in the cloud and how crucial of a role does that play in your view? So encryption is absolutely crucial and it's really about protecting data throughout its entire life cycle. So data at rest that's being stored in the cloud, data in transit being transferred to and from clouds to different workloads. And then the really the last piece of the puzzle is data in use protection and encryption and using encryption you know, like confidential computing. And that's why you're seeing this huge focus today um, on confidential computing as a service capability in the cloud, because that has been the last mile of data security that we need to be able to do in the cloud is be able to protect their data as it's transacted on and really to protect the data from the, the, the other tenants in the cloud, whether that be the cloud provider themselves, a rogue administrator, 
or a uh, another tenant that's you know that's gone rogue that's they has a VM that that could sniff another VM. Having your data protected throughout all of its lifecycle using encryption, you know, for for all stages is really the answer. And then pairing that with having the right performance and the right geolocation for your data to make sure you're adhering to the government or the industry regulations and policies is really the right triumphant. So you've got those last those three aspects completely correct there. Good to know. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on Tech Insights today. Today, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Brian. It was a pleasure being here. And for our listeners of Tech Insights, don't miss an episode. We're out every Monday morning with a new episode of Tech Insights. So make sure that you subscribe. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Steve, what's your favorite podcast app? I typically use Apple Podcasts. Okay. Well, uh, subscribe to Tech Insights on there. And whatever podcast app you happen to use, we're available. So thanks so much for listening. I'm Brian Jackson.